BFFBJ. That's true. We're best friends forever because of Jesus. <laughs> and we're going to get to spend a whole lot of time together one of these days. So this morning, I want to encourage you with the Wellspring Disciplines because they've been such a blessing in my life. Would you turn your binders over and we'll just read those. Um, the purpose statement is that we are here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. I have been so blessed by the equipping and encouraging teaching toward Jesus Christ with the word of God that Wellspring has provided for me over this past year. Our lessons have exposed deeper layers of my sinful heart, the awfulness of deception and sin, and its dangerous power to entangle me. Sin doesn't let go easily, does it? But praise God, we do have a fight in our hearts, and that is discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and, in particular, the gospel. Shepherding our heart is the starting point in the list of disciplines because we know from God's word that our hearts are the source of what comes out of us. When we are watchful to prayerfully examine our thinking, our feelings, and our reasoning by what God's word teaches, we're strengthened to think and to do what is right with pure motives and wholesome words. How many of you in here would call yourselves caregivers? Children, parents, My life work for the past several years has been that of a caregiver for my husband. It's a role that has been exactly what I needed to grow in love and dependence on the Lord. It comes with lots of stretch marks on my heart. Sometimes hard days turn into whole seasons of difficulty. I recently found myself in one of those times. I couldn't control what was going on around me, but I found that shepherding my heart to God's word, remembering the gospel, and constant prayer fed my heart to surrender to what I knew was God's rock-solid truth. Something that I have found helpful to fortify my heart is to pick a verse to go that's fitting for my current weakness. After morning prayer and worship in God's word, I choose something to jot down that will be my pocket reminder for the next few days. Often it's something short and easy to remember, I meditate on it. I make sure I understand the depth of the truth tucked in those few precious words. I like to look up the definition of key words to make sure I get the full impact of the teaching. I pray the verse often throughout the day. I speak it out loud when I can. In the car is a great place when you're driving. I may not remember the verse a month from now, 
but it is a precious truth that I can claim for a day or a week. It is purposeful thinking on a few of God's words that correct or encourage my thinking and feelings for the season or trial that I'm in. I find that the concept stays with me as truth in my heart, even when I can't remember exactly how it's worded or the address. One of my favorite verses became Psalm 44, 8. It says, In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I found this verse to be particularly helpful no matter my heart, because it directs my wayward thoughts and feelings. What can I boast about my God? Who is he? He's my creator, my king, my defender, my rock of refuge, my counselor, my judge, my savior. Or what can I tell you about his character? He's just, he's loving. He is always right and always speaks truth. He's long-suffering. He's perfect and holy and eternal, and he knows everything about everything. Or perhaps try to imagine all that he does in a 24-hour period. He juggles the whole world and moves the hearts of kings, and yet he gives me favor in even the simplest of things I ask for him, like finding the last two cans of beans I need hidden high on the shelf in back of the grocery store. I could go on and on, and that is the point. Boasting in God stirs my heart to be grateful for his constant presence and provision in my life. It reminds me to thank him. It's actually giving glory to him. And above all, I must remember his saving grace to me. This is a verse that ultimately causes me to rehearse the gospel and worship the Lord. And this pours out of my house into my home. Discipline too. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. My husband Richard and I have been married 36 years. For about the last 15 years, he has been having small strokes that slowly have affected his cognitive processing skills, how he's able to think. He has dementia from all the strokes, but God has been so good to us. In 2010, shortly after his 61st birthday, Richard accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. He has several major health issues now, but this is the way the Lord allows us to serve him best. I absolutely know that God is completely in control of our circumstances and that this life is absolutely the very best thing for both of us. Anything I would choose other than what God has permitted would be second best or worse. In a very organic sort of way, these times have become a ministry that God has allowed us together because of our life circumstances. I speak openly about our faith and freely witness to others that help with his care 
and come into our home. In the context of our home, a struggle I was having in recent years is how do I not become strictly clinical in my caregiving? As I watch my husband slip into total dependence, a certain emotional detachment came along with all there is to do. I was aware of it. I didn't like it. And I didn't know that it was a lack of heart shepherding. Perhaps some of you that care for others may be able to identify with that kind of disconnect. My heart needs to be soft as I perform the many repetitive, thankless, humbling daily tasks. It helps as I work throughout the day to remember God's word, to pray, and to consider there really are a great many things to be thankful for. He has provided everything we need for life and godliness. We are surrounded by his compassion and his mercy. He has given Richard and me faith to believe and hearts of repentance. As the Spirit of God controls my heart, what bubbles over is a reflection of my Savior's characteristics. And the Lord is not clinical in dealing with us. Another thing I've learned as I watch over my heart throughout the day is to find opportunities to talk about the Lord. The season of life I'm in right now is hard. But strangely enough, I find these have become the best days of my life because my dependence on God has grown greater than ever. Richard's illness has been the vehicle the Lord has used to bring him to himself. Last year, I became burdened for Richard to hear God's word so that he could grow in truth, however the Lord may work that out. So I began reading the New Testament out loud at breakfast every morning. Then Richard began sundowning. For those of you that don't know, it is a frightful confusion that comes over people with brain injury that causes them to become very agitated and restless. And it tends to come on in the late afternoon hours, which is why they call it sundowning. One particular night, I was so tired. I hadn't found time for my daily Bible reading yet. So while he was confused and restless, I sat down next to his bed and began reading to him from the Old Testament. He calmed down and after a little bit fell asleep. The next night I asked if he would like me to read to him again, and he said yes. The following night, he asked me to read. Now it's what we do every night. His heart and mind are quieted as he listens to God's word. It's another gift that the Lord has given us. A sweet time together that did not characterize our marriage before this season of life. And what naturally flows from this work in our lives is discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. 
Not too long ago, someone at church asked me how my week had gone. Awful was my too honest response, but God has been so good. I've been completely dependent on him. I trust him no matter what. He never gives us second best. And then a whole conversation ensued, and I surprised myself with the genuine peace and joy I felt and was eager to offer words of encouragement, pointing her to our mutual source of strength and encouragement, Jesus Christ. Other days, I am the one who needs a sister to encourage me. And I love that we are available for each other, sharing the burdens of life because of our love of Jesus. Finally, I love the diversity of my friends because of Jesus. God has made us uniquely different to fit together in the body of Christ And yet we have these really important major life things in common. We are sinners that love Jesus. We have various trials and temptations that we share, but we all have the same rescuer. We will spend eternity together. Realizing that we are each in a similar imperfect condition softens my heart to be more compassionate and patient. So thank you, each one of you. You've blessed my heart to be able to boast in the Lord with you this morning. Diana, I never get tired of hearing you boast in the Lord. Thank you. discipline we're talking about in our lesson today. And her ministry is right where God has placed her. You know, we never know what ministry is going to look like in our own lives, but as Diana shared, wherever it is, it's an opportunity for us to grow, for God to give us his stretch marks. Isn't that a great way to look at it? Uh, and to be used by him. And it's, it's all for his glory. Well, this morning we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1. We're going to look at Paul's example of effective ministry. By the way, in your handouts, did you have a list of verses for pondering? Is that one of your handouts? Is that in there? Okay. Um, Diana didn't mention this, but she put that together as just, you know, of course we can all find verses as we read, but sometimes um, maybe we're distracted or we don't even know where to go. That's just a list that she put together for us, just that we can use to shepherd our own hearts, um, maybe to encourage a friend with or your children. Um, But that's what that's for. You can add that to the resources in your notebook and you'll just have it to use. Um, So as we begin... I want to ask you just to jot down some names of people in your life. Jot down the names of people you live with. You just do it on your worksheet there. Names of people you live with. Include some believers, unbelievers, co-workers, neighbors, just people who come off the top of your head. Um, 
<clears throat> and so it doesn't, obviously it's not going to be everybody in your life. Sorry, I'm still getting organized here. Um, but as we go through this lesson, these are the names and these are the faces that I want you to have in mind as you listen to this lesson. Because none of us are the Apostle Paul, right? None of us are, are him. But we all have a field of ministry right where God has placed us, just like we heard from Diana. And this is something that's really helpful for me to remember, um, because otherwise it's really tempting just to look at this lesson as something that was really great for Paul. Um, you know, but, but I might be tempted to think, well, this is just beyond my sphere of influence. Um, but that's not, because the princi- that's not true. The principles that we're going to learn from Paul's ministry here in 1 Thessalonians are exactly what we need to carry into our ministry, whether it's in our home, with our kids, our husband, our brothers and sisters, moms and dads, our church, and everywhere else the Lord has placed us. So let's go ahead and um, pray, and then we'll get started with, with 1 Thessalonians 1. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I really do thank you for your great salvation through Jesus Christ, for knitting us together as a body, for giving us your spirit, for giving us your word, giving us one another. Father, we are absolutely dependent on you and your Holy Spirit to do your work in us this morning. Lord, I need these words to do your work in me, to transform me. Lord, that's what each of us need. I I pray you would just have your way in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're not there already, you can open up your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, We're going to read through the entire chapter, but then we'll focus in on our lesson, mostly on just chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. But while you're turning there, I want to remind you of a little bit of background Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is found in Acts 17. In fact, I think you'll look at that in your homework this week because next, les- next, week, next two weeks from now lesson is also in 1 Thessalonians. Um, and this was Paul's second missionary journey, and he is with T- Timothy and Silas. He's called Silvanus in the first verse of the chapter. Now in Acts 17, 1 and 2, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. And we know that Jews and Gentiles, and it even specifically mentions that there were a number of women who were saved. And now when it says that Paul was there for three Sabbaths, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't there any longer than three weeks, but we do know that he went into the synagogue and explained the scriptures for only three Sabbaths. Three times he explained that Jesus is the Messiah and that he had come to suffer and to be raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. So if we stop and think about that, a church existed in Thessalonica because Paul was faithful to preach the gospel to them for just a very short time. And sometimes I know I need to remember that that's how powerful the gospel is, and that's how he wants to use us in gospel ministry. 
And so now Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. It's about a year later. He's writing to them from Corinth. So follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to look at the impact of the gospel ministry in Thessalonica. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And now Paul is going to go on and explain how he knows that they're chosen. Verse 5 He writes, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We I'm sorry, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So now with our focus on verses 5 to 10, we're going to look at five ministry truths that will better help us understand discipline three and how the Lord would have us minister to the people he's placed in our lives. Don't forget those names. Don't forget those faces. Those are the people you want to keep in mind as we look at these principles. So there's some, these are some important components of ministry that we see in Paul's ministry with the Thessalonians. Um, And you have them all in your outline. So we're going to go ahead and start with number one. Um, Ministry's message must include the gospel. That's the blank there. Ministry's message must include the gospel. So when we talk about ministry, we we, we need to be sure we understand what the message is. And in our homework, we read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, the whole book, and we looked for the kinds of things that Paul addressed. And we saw that his message included a lot of things. There was evangelism, there was encouragement, strengthening, warnings, commands, instructions. His message addressed a broad spectrum of the Christian life. But what we don't want to miss is where he began and what all of his communication was rooted in, and that is the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was central to Paul's message. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul's talking about evangelism, how he brought the gospel to those who had never heard it before. But Paul's use of the gospel, his view of gospel ministry, was not limited to evangelism. He didn't reserve the gospel for evangelism alone. And I think it's helpful to look at some verses and see Paul's broader use of the gospel beyond evangelism. 
So we're going to walk through these verses on your outline together. We're going to move pretty quickly. I just want to give you a glimpse at how this is scattered through the New Testament. Um, In Romans 1, Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. And in verse 15, he writes, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the believers there. And then in Romans 16, 25, at the end of the letter, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Paul wants these believers to be established according to the gospel. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved, the word of the cross, the gospel, is, that's present tense, right now, ongoing, it is the power of God. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Jenna read these for us. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Do you see that the fact that these believers had already received the gospel and they were standing in the gospel and they were being saved by the gospel, it didn't keep Paul from making it known to them again. He's reminding them as believers of the same gospel that saved them. In verse 3, he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what message did he receive? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Right? That's the gospel. The gospel Paul is preaching, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins, is of first importance. It's the most important thing he has to say. And in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Colossians 1.23, he exhorts believers not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. He writes, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel you have heard. And now if you flip over to page two of your outline, I'd like you to follow along with me. I'd like you to hear how Milton Vincent, you don't have to read out loud, but it just might be easier to follow along on a long quote like this. Um, But this is from a gospel primer, and this is how he summarizes the role of the gospel in the life of believers. It's this little brown book, and they're actually available. If you don't have one of these, I would ask your husband to give you one for Easter. (laughs) I think they're $9, and I think, Rebecca, are you taking money for those? Oh, okay. Well, then Omri is going to come. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, anyway, they're out on the table. Make sure that Omri gets $9 from you if you take one. Um, But this is is from that book if you don't have that. Okay. Um, So you're going to hear again some of the passages we just mentioned as he pulls those together here. So the New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. We read that. Of course, he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians at Rome. Yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well. To the Corinthian Christians who had already believed and been saved by the gospel, Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which you have believed. And then he restates the historical facts of the gospel before showing them how those gospel facts apply to their beliefs about the afterlife. This is actually Paul's approach to various other issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. 
in most of Paul's letters to churches, sizable portions of them are given over to rehearsing gospel truth. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3 is all gospel. Colossians 1 and 2 is gospel, and Romans 1 through 11 is full of gospel truth. The remainder of such books shows specifically how to bring those gospel truths to bear on life. Re-preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to life was Paul's choice method for ministering to believers, thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and other believers. So at this point in Wellspring, this is probably not a new idea. This is not the first time you've heard this. But for many of us who have spent years thinking, well, the gospel is how people get saved, and so you preach it to unbelievers. Um, and we do, right? But if, we, if that's all that we think, then we're missing a very significant aspect of the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing um, something very important. That is that the gospel still needs to be preached to those who believe, who are already in the faith. So here are your next blanks on the outline. The gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. And the gospel must be preached to those who are believers. Now, listen, I want to be sure you hear this. That doesn't mean we neglect anything else in the word. It's not the gospel instead of the rest of God's word. Um, God's word is full of promises, instructions, comforts, as well as commands to obey. And we don't, but the whole point of this is that we don't want to miss our ongoing need for the gospel as well. We want the whole counsel of God's word. Um, And so... Um, yeah, so we don't want to neglect the gospel because it's not only foundational to our salvation, but it's foundational to all aspects of our Christian life. So let's think just a little bit about that. Let's think about how it gives us a foundation. Well, the gospel puts God's character on display for us. It's his, it shows us his justice, his mercy, his love, his power, and that helps us grow in reverence for him and our knowledge of him. It provides us with new life through Christ's resurrection from the dead. And with that new life come new abilities and desires to love and obey our Savior. Do you guys remember at the beginning of the year? Might be time to take this out again, right? Lots of reminders here of how the gospel is a foundation for our walk with him. The gospel gives us the certain hope of eternity with our Lord. And it sets us on a path in which we can be assured that God is at work even in our trials for our good to make us more like Christ and to purify our faith. And the gospel assures us that on our best day and and on our worst day, our acceptance with God depends on the finished work of Jesus alone. And so we obey him out of love for him, not because we're trying to earn his approval. And the gospel is what ushers us into life as members of Christ's body here together. The gospel's foundational in all of this. Do you see what a treasure we have in the gospel? So our message in ministry must include the gospel. And if that's true, then we need to know the gospel, right? We need to know what that is. And so that's why we had you write that out in your homework this week. And so what do we mean when we say the gospel? Well, on one hand, we can be as succinct as God saves sinners, right? 
We already read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those are the core truths of the gospel. But when we're ministering with the gospel, we'll also want to include some context and implications of those core truths. We'll talk about God's right to rule in our lives and the judgment we deserve because of our sin. We'll talk about what Christ has accomplished at the cross, what the gospel does in the life of a believer, and the promises we have of eternal life with God. And so to give you some tools to help you keep growing in your understanding of the gospel and to keep growing in your ability to communicate the gospel, you received a gospel resource handout this morning. These are some tools that can help you grow in communicating the gospel and shepherding with the gospel, both in your own heart as well as with others. And so although we had you write out the gospel as part of your homework for this week, we're going to have you take a look at that again and refine it if you need to. So don't hand that in. We want you to hang on to it so you can give that another look. And as we all continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes, we'll be more willing to talk about it, both with unbelievers as well as with one another. So we'll want to talk about it because the gospel is about knowing Christ. We want the gospel to saturate us because it's the good news about our Savior and what he has done. And so as we think about ministry, again, we have the whole counsel of God. We have all of his word. We have his power to make us more like Christ through his word. And we want to use God's word in our care for one another. And as we do that, we need to remember Paul's example and how eager he was to preach the gospel to believers and to make it known to them and to establish them in it. He said it was of first importance, that it was the power of God for those who believe and that believers must not move away from the hope of the gospel. The gospel was the foundation under Paul's instruction, under his teaching, his encouragement, his warnings, and his commands. And our relationships need the gospel, too. That's what belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul's. We want to be looking for ways to encourage others with the gospel, and we want ourselves to have hearts that are hungry to hear it. Because when we're struggling, where we need to begin is with the gospel. You know, have you ever felt yourself just hard? You don't even want to open your Bible. You don't even want to pray. Maybe you want to call somebody, but you really don't want them to talk to you about God's word. But, but when we stop that rebellion and we ask someone to preach truth to us or we preach it to our own hearts and we remember who God is and we remember the offensiveness of our sin and we remember what Christ suffered so our sin could be forgiven and he rose, he rose from the dead so that believers are freed from sin's enslavement and that we can walk in newness of life, boy, those are the truths that soften our hearts to repent. It helps us grieve over the wrath of God that Jesus endured for us. You know, thinking about our sin in light of the cross grows our love for Jesus. And the gospel prepares us to fight our sin and to obey his commands. And keeping the gospel central gives us hope helps us to remember that we're saved by grace. We're not under condemnation because Jesus bore all the condemnation we deserve. We're deeply loved by our God, and we see that in sharpest focus in the gospel. Of course, ministry isn't always even about sin we're struggling with. We need to encourage and 
help to instruct one another in many different seasons of life, many different circumstances. And remembering the gospel, including the gospel, that can bring a lot of comfort and hope and endurance. And we want to remember that with our children. We want to be careful not to only talk about the gospel when we're giving correction and discipline, right? Because gospel's hope, even when you're not doing something wrong. You know, it takes practice to do this, and so we just need to walk carefully and humbly with one another as we grow in bringing the gospel to one another in ways that are helpful. We don't ever want to bring the gospel without being compassionate, without being sympathetic, without being concerned about the person. Um, But in the midst of loving one another, we do bring the gospel because that is where our hope is. It's where we're drawn back to the lover of our souls. So ministry's message must include the gospel. I know we spent a lot of time on that, but I just think it's really helpful to come back, take a look at what God's word tells us about how much we still need the gospel. Now, you might have noticed we skipped the third bullet on page two. You can go back and look at those on your own if you like. They show how Paul emphasized the gospel in his ministry in Thessalonica. He he brought the gospel. It was in the midst of opposition, hardship, labor, um, and it was what God had entrusted him to do. So those are just some additional references for you. Now, our second point, we're on page three of the outline. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. That's the next blank, uncommon messenger. Now, as important as the gospel message is, the content of the gospel was not where Paul was actually focused in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Here he was focused not on the content of the message, but the carrier of the message. He wanted to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. So let's read verse 5 again. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how did the gospel come? Well, it did come in word, but not in word only. It came in power. It came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. And how do we know the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Well, let's finish reading verse 5. He says, just as... You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, just as is a word that shows a comparison. It's acting like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came with power and the spirit and full conviction is the kind of messengers that he and Silas and Timothy were. Paul's focusing them back beyond just the content of the gospel message. Um, And when he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers these three things about it. First, he remembers that he came to them and there was power. In his interaction with them, the power of God was there among them as messengers of the gospel. And then second, he remembers that his coming was in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work in these messengers was evident. And then third, he remembers that when they came, They had fullness of confidence. Again, he's talking about these messengers who had full conviction about the message they proclaimed. All of these things he's describing, the power, the Holy Spirit, the full conviction, these were all seen in the men who brought the message. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul's point is to describe the gospel messenger. And that's because the quality of the messenger is so important. It's why discipline one, the heart, is our first discipline. 
Meeting with God daily in his word is what will make us fruitful gospel servants, uncommon messengers who come in power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction about the power and hope of God's word for every part of life. So if we want to be that kind of gospel messenger, then we need to make it our prayer to ask God to please, um, as we seek to bring the gospel into our relationships, to help us rely on his power in our conversations, in our service, in our time with our children, in our responses. Just to cry out to God, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. I need full conviction of the power of your word to comfort or to convict, to transform. And so what did that kind of power look like in these gospel messengers? So what do you think of when you think of power? Maybe somebody exercising a little muscle? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, he says about halfway into the verse, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. He's saying we had the right to assert our authority as apostles. But... We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That puts such a great picture in our mind, doesn't it? Here's Paul, a man with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Verse 8, he says, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd come become very dear to us. You know, you'll be reading through uh, 1 Thessalonians, just kind of skimming through it again um, for the next lesson. And I hope that if you didn't notice it in preparation for today, just look at Paul's tenderness to these precious believers in Thessalonica. And so he, he's talking about his gentleness, right? His fond affection for them. So we just need to stop and ask ourselves, is that how we typically think of power? Gentle, a nursing mother, tender care, affection. You know, Paul was an apostle. He had authority, and yet he shows us how effective ministry embraces gentleness. That's why Paul's analogy of a nursing mother is so powerful. A nursing mother doesn't want to place a burden on her baby, Instead, she seeks to remove any obstacle to her baby receiving exactly what he needs. And so as we think about ministry in our home or to anyone in our sphere of influence, we need to be thinking about the kind of care that steps into someone else's world, into their life, into their mess, with love and gentleness, humility, patience. That's the kind of care that will help them get to a better place. Didn't Jesus do that? And Paul did that too. The Thessalonians needed the gentleness of a nursing mother, and this apostle was that for them. The gospel is the milk we all need. It's what changes us, right? It's what nourishes us, and it's what will nourish others as well as we walk with them in love. So what will it take in your life, in my life, to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people that God has placed or will place in our lives. Let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get the gospel, to get Jesus, and let's plead with God for his power 
Let's ask the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives. Let's plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through us. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger, and we have all that we need in Christ to be that messenger. Okay, that brings us to number three. Our third blank, ministry involves imitation. Ministry involves imitation. Now let's read 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. It begins, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now by saying of us and of the Lord, Paul's not saying that there, that there were two different lives to imitate. Rather, the, Paul's, pattern, Paul's saying his pattern of life was in alignment with the Lord's. He's saying that if you imitate me, you will be imitating Christ. Um, he also said this to the Corinthians. I think you have the verse there, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So we do want to be sure that the gospel comes in words. That was our first point on the outline. But we also want our lives to be so transformed by the gospel that our lives are actually imitatable. That needs to be our prayer, that God would make us imitatable women. Now your reaction might be like mine. Really? (laughs) Me? Um, But yes, that is how we need to be thinking. People are watching us. And that can feel really intimidating, can't it? And so we can't think of that without, again, remembering the gospel. As we align our lives with Christ, the gospel enables us and keeps transforming us to live a life worth imitating. And that's good news. It's Christ's work in us. Now, that word alignment can be really helpful. Doesn't it make you think of driving? Um, You know, it's easy to tell when a car is out of alignment just because it makes it hard to drive. That's pretty much all I know. Um, You have to kind of fight with the steering wheel to keep the car going straight. But when a car is in alignment, it means it travels in a straight line. All four tires are pointing in exactly the direction they're supposed to. In fact, when you drive a car that is in alignment, you don't really even notice it, do you? Um, Because it's just the way it's supposed to operate. And that's God's intention for us. We're to so align our lives with Christ that others might align their lives Uh, might imitate our life as we imitate Jesus. So what is is having a life that's worth imitating look like? Um, What are some characteristics and marks in the life of a godly, imitatable person? Well, you're going to have more time to think about that in your homework this week. You certainly can find lots of things here in 1 Thessalonians. You can look back through old Wellspring lessons to find uh, more ideas for that. And God, in his kindness, has just given us examples throughout his word. Paul is certainly one of the greatest examples for us in the church. Um, Not that he was perfect, um, but as a gospel minister, Paul not only preached the gospel, he not only established churches and instructed them, but he also put his own life right out in front of them so they could see a life transformed by the gospel. He didn't just come in, drop off an instruction manual, and walk away. But he lived with them, and he continued to care for them. So his example brought an impact to the lives of those that he ministered with. And that's God's goal for us. Doesn't that remind you of God's design for us as older and younger women in Titus 2 as well? God's design in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but that we give each other an example to follow. 
Okay, well, how did the Thessalonians imitate Paul's example? Let's look at verse 6 again. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So when the Thessalonians received the word, there was hostile opposition. There was persecution. But in God's design, in God's plan, the gospel went forward in the midst of that tribulation. Now, Paul certainly experienced um, tribulation as well as the Thessalonian believers, and yet tribulation was accompanied by joy. Do you see that? Joy produced in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't naturally think that opposition and tribulation and joy go together. I tend to think that tribulation might dampen my joy a little bit. But this verse tells us that with the tribulation comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, just as Paul did. And it's in that sense that they imitated him. The word came to them. There was hostile opposition, there was persecution, and yet they were joyful. They had gained a treasure in Christ that no amount of trouble could ever take away from them. And we can have that kind of joy. We must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so as to be this kind of joyful example to others. So when hardship comes in our lives, there's still joy, and others can imitate that. Now, with all that said, I know that in my own life, joy has been a discipline I've needed to learn I needed to cultivate it and pursue it. You just can't say you've got joy if no one else can tell. You know, I used to think the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was enough. But it's really not there if it's not showing on your face. Um, so if, if you're like me, if that's something that maybe is difficult for you, I want to encourage you to just dive into God's word and see what God's word has to say about joy. Um, you have some references from John at the bottom of page 3 in your outline that describe the joy that Jesus has for us. And then at the top of page 4, there are some additional references if you want some help get studying joy. It might be something that you would want to come back and study in the summer when well spring is over. Um, and you could even turn it into a little devotional to do with your kids. Okay, so our next blank is number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Effective lives. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 1.7. We'll pick up with our reading back in verse 6, though. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the life that is imitatable is also an effective life. It's a life that God uses to multiply ministry. The Thessalonians became imitators for a reason, for a purpose. That so that, at the beginning of verse 7, indicates that there's a purpose coming. You became imitators so that you became an example. In verses 6 and 7, there's a chain reaction taking place in gospel ministry. And that chain reaction is one person imitating another and then someone else imitating them. Christ is imitated by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And then they become men that the Thessalonians imitated. And now the Thessalonians are examples all over Macedonia and Achaia, the whole region where they live. That's the chain reaction. 
And that's where we need to set our sights in gospel ministry. If we step into someone else's life simply for the purpose of being an example for them to follow, we're still missing something. We want to not only be an example, but also to help them to grow into being examples for others. Paul then offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that's been taking place. It's an explanation of what we mean by effective lives. Verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's how the Thessalonians were the example, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Do you notice how far the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them? Remember, they first heard the gospel a year ago, but it's sounded forth not only in their own local area, but in every place that their faith has gone forth. And verse 8 tells us the effects of this. It says, so that we have no need to say anything. Do you see what Paul is saying? The great preacher Paul can't say anything more. Their gospel proclamation and their example was so effective. Their lives are so thoroughly transformed as believers that by the time Paul got there, there was nothing to add. Can you imagine gospel proclamation that was so effective that the apostle Paul was reduced to silence? That is effective gospel ministry. So let's just take a minute to review what are the principles for ministry we've learned so far from Paul's example with the Thessalonians. Well, first we've seen that living a life of ministry means that we never leave the gospel behind. It infuses our thoughts, it's the joy of our hearts, it's the comfort of our own souls, and it's what we're always looking to share with others. And two, it means being an uncommon messenger with the gospel, displaying God's power and his spirit and conviction through gentleness, through gentleness. And then number three, we've seen that it means being an example to others, having joy in the midst of our trials. And then four, we've seen that we need to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want them to be so effective that ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues through them. We need to pray that God would use those that we minister to in our homes, in our small groups, every place that he puts us to speak far more broadly than we can. That's a high calling, but we don't want to shrink back from it. Instead, it's something we need to look at and aim for and pray for God to do through us by his grace. That's what the gospel has the power to do. It's what God calls us to do. And so let's pray and ask God to use us in this way. All right. Well, that brings us to our last principle, number five. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. That's the last blank. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. So let's look back at verses 9 and 10. So in verse 9, he's explaining verse 8. Verse 8 ended, we have no need to say anything. And why is that? Um, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the Macedonians and Achaeans were reporting two things. First, they're reporting about the gospel messenger that Paul was and the kind of reception he had with the Thessalonians. So what kind of reception did Paul have? Well, the word reception is the word for an entrance, 
Paul had a wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. That's the report that's going out. Paul's ministry was well received. Paul here is emphasizing again how important the messenger is, his manner among them, the kind of man he proved to be among them. His behavior was never an obstacle for the gospel. And that helps complement something else. It's the second things that the Macedonians were reporting. They were reporting about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. They turned to God from idols. What's that called when someone turns? That's repentance. That's right. The report is about how they repented. The point of the report is not just how Paul was received, but that they also repented. So the whole goal of being received was so that they would repent and turn to the Lord. That's gospel ministry. That's what we mean when we say that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Now, most of the time, we focus on that first part without too much trouble. We kind of like to be well-received, right? We, we enjoy being liked and welcomed. We like that kind of reputation. But the Macedonians and Achaeans couldn't only think of that aspect of gospel ministry. They also thought of repentance. This repentance showed that they had not only seen the example of a gospel of how the gospel transformed Paul, but that they had also heard the gospel proclaimed and responded to it. And that's how it should be with us too. We must proclaim the gospel as well as live it out. Some of us are very focused on being sure we give out the gospel without necessarily being concerned with how we give it out. You know, it could be a little hit and run in our approach. Others of us might be way more focused on the relational side. We might be more inclined to think, well, you know, I want to build a really strong relationship and show them the love of Christ, but then it just gets to be really, really hard to actually get around to sharing the gospel. But we can't be satisfied with either of those. We can't be satisfied with thinking, well, I gave them the gospel, maybe I was a little harsh, but hey, at least they heard it. And we can't be satisfied with thinking, well, you know, maybe I didn't give them the gospel or I might have kind of softened it, but at least I was really loving and nice. You know, we just can't be satisfied with either of those options. If we want to be effective in ministry, we must share a clear and complete and accurate gospel. But that gospel proclamation is never disconnected from caring for people. And we have to be careful because we all probably tend toward one or the other. We might tend to favor one to the exclusion of the other. So what do we need to be doing? We give the gospel and we impart our lives. We want to work to join these together, to join the gospel content and gospel care together. They're inseparable. And they are effective together as we labor for nothing less than repentance. Now look at verses 9 and 10 again. What characterized the Thessalonians' repentance? Well, it says they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So they served God and they waited for Jesus' return. If ministry labors for nothing less than repentance, that means we labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord who long for Jesus' return. And remember, all this is to be done gently, like a nursing mother, not, with, not being harsh, not being abrasive. 
We're going to close with turning to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Go ahead and turn over there. I just love these verses because, again, Paul emphasizes the kind of gospel messenger that the Lord loves to use. 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. And it's our responsibility, it's our privilege as those who are under grace to be that kind of messenger. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, teaching and correcting with gentleness. That's the kind of person God loves to use in bringing people to repentance. And if we're going to be that kind of women, we never, never, never can leave behind discipline one, can we? We need to shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts because we understand how important it is for us to step in to the relationships in our homes and in our church and in our world with the right message and being the right kind of messenger. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus, for being the perfect example. Thank you that he is so much more than our example. Lord, if that's all he were, we would only be discouraged. But Lord, through him we have newness of life. I pray that you would grant us each grace to persevere, to be determined to fix our eyes on Christ and to press on to be faithful proclaimers of your gospel and uncommon messengers of your gospel that bring you much glory. Lord, I do pray that you would be pleased to bring the repentance, Lord. You are the one who must be pleased to bring that repentance, Lord. Please bring it in our homes, bring it in our neighborhoods, Lord. Bring it in our workplaces, wherever you put us. Father, our world is dark and lost, and we pray that you would grant us grace to see that hope come to others. In Jesus' name, amen.